Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. I hope you're doing well on this lovely June day. Well, by the time this launches, it might be early July. But either way, hope all is well in your world. Today I got a guest who's been on a time or two. Um, Probably one of the most entertaining people I have conversations with. His understanding or knowledge set of natural history, hunting conservation, is just, it's beyond what the the average hunter would even dream of. Uh, besides being a trained small game biologist, um, he now has his own podcast, and that is Jonathan Odell. He has a podcast called From the Back Burner, which is uh, I don't know uh, how how would I say this he he takes all of these topics and I, uh, in my head when I think of the the episodes I've listened to uh, on the from the back burner he takes food he takes culture he takes landscapes he takes really interesting people and he has a discussion about hunting and hunting is what weaves its way through these discussions he has so I wanted to have him on our podcast for a couple of reasons. One, I enjoy visiting with him. And I think if you go back and listen to some of the prior podcasts where Jonathan's been on, uh, you'll be very entertained by him. Uh, and I think if, if my audience appreciates natural history and food and culture and unique people and all those things as much as I do, uh, I thought you'd want to know about Jonathan's podcast. So from the back burner is the name of his podcast and we'll get into that. And I can't even imagine what else we'll get into. I am sure there will be plenty of history and, uh, I try my best to to tag along and add something of value when Jonathan starts talking history, but I don't know if I, (laughs) I I don't know if I'm of much help, but uh, anyhow, I want to thank Leupold for making this podcast possible. They are the title sponsor of this podcast and most everything else we do. Go to Leupold.com, check out all their great optics, all their new stuff. We're talking tripods, sunglasses, you name it. They are an American-held local family company in Beaverton, Oregon. They employ, I don't know, seven, 800 people, and they are working like crazy trying to keep up with everybody. So I hope you'll support them because they sure support us. Also brought to you by Nosler Ammunition. It's, it's kind of like I could say this about most of the companies we deal with, Nosler right? John Nosler starts a company in 1948 to build partition bullets. And if you want to hear a cool podcast about the history of that company and the family business that it still is out in Bend, Oregon, I think it was last August, uh, 
I had uh, Young John, I guess the second version, uh, on the podcast. So go to Nosler.com, look for their ammo in your sporting goods store. They are working to produce it as fast as they possibly can. And yeah, I know it's disappearing off the shelves quick, but uh, go to Nosler.com. Also, you can get on their notification list and uh, maybe you can get some that way. Uh, Mystery Ranch backpacks, you know we've been using those since before we even started these platforms. Uh, if you want to save some money on Mystery Ranch, I mean, well, here, here's the deal of the world, right? An amazing pack that you can save 10% on, and here's how you do it. You buy it from Go Hunt out in their gear shop. So go to GoHunt.com, go to the gear shop, put a Mystery Ranch pack in your cart, and if you check out using promo code RANDY, they're going to give you 10% off that pack plus just about every regular priced item in your cart. There's a few things that are exempted, but most everything there, you're going to get 10% off. Just make sure you use promo code Randy. My buddy, Corey Jacobson, he's got the University of Elk Hunting. Uh, it is that season where we're all trying to pick up a little tidbit, little piece here, little piece there. Go out to elk101.com, sign up for the university class. And when you do that, you're going to save 20 bucks by using promo code Randy when you sign up. And then we have, you guys are going to say, is, uh, Newberg, is everything you're involved with these days a subscription model? Uh, yeah, not completely, but a lot of them because I'm so fed up with Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Yeah, I'll do another podcast on that someday. I think I did one last summer about how, how I'm not a big fan of, of those models where you become the currency in order for them to operate. So yeah, I am working with a lot of companies that have subscription models these days. And the other one is uh, Go Hunt. They have the new mapping platform. Uh, it's all 50 states for 50 bucks, well, 49.99. And uh, if you use promo code Randy when you buy it, uh, they're going to give you 20 bucks off. Yeah, I got to get my, my numbers straight here. But uh, anyhow, it's everything you want. You also get access to their store point system where you get points for for what you buy in their store and uh, mobile maps, desktop maps. I mean, you get the entire map suite that their insiders get, but you just get it for a lot less money. You get it for $49.99. So go there. GoHunt.com, sign up. Use promo code Randy. Save some money. And then we have Fresh Tracks RTV, or FreshTracks.tv. If you go there, you'll see our subscription model. Uh, we hope you'll support us. Uh, so far, the response has been great. We've been at it for a little over nine months, and I can't thank all of you enough for giving us some, uh, some ability to start being less reliant on all these ad-based and moderated platforms and the last one uh you probably saw it on all of our channels in the last couple weeks uh i've produced a, a rifle elk hunting class for uh it's a platform called outdoor class uh i did rifle elk hunting Corey jacobson did archery elk hunting remy warren did meal deer jamie teagan did cooking uh venison and upcoming we got john barklow from sitka who's been on this podcast we got hank shaw who's been on this podcast there, there's all kinds of amazing experts who are going to be adding a lot of content to that platform so if you want to maybe pick up some
some more tidbits here and there, uh, go to outdoorclass.com and uh, sign up. Use promo code Randy, and they'll give you 20% off. So there you go. We, we never pay retail around here, right? So uh, appreciate y'all being here. I'm pretty sure you're going to have a lot of fun listening to John O'Dell. He, uh, he was over in, uh, where was he, England. He travels all over, this guy. Uh, and he and I were talking about the difference of just hunting cultures, but also the, the wildlife conservation models that he's seen in a lot of his travels. Because he's been to Asia, he's been Mexico, you, you name it, he, he's been all over. But when he got back from his trip from England, he and I were talking about it. He's, he uh, mentioned how easy it is for the general public to acquire hunter-killed wild game meat over there i'm like what he's like yeah i said all right we gotta do a podcast on this so i'm sure we'll get into that topic but uh anyhow appreciate all you being here appreciate you supporting us and uh, in a second we're gonna have john odell on the line mr jonathan odell welcome back to the hunt talk radio podcast hey thanks very much yeah, it's been like two years since you've been on. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen you, you know, in the interim there, but we just yeah. didn't record a podcast there, so. Do you know how many people ask me, hey, when are you going to have Odell back on? That guy, he's like this walking encyclopedia. He's always got these bits <laughs> of trivia and all this natural <laughs> history that intrigues me. And so I'm glad that they, they feel that way because... I, when I'm with you, you know, when I'm in Arizona or you're up here, I feel that I'm being a nuisance because you're like my Google of the natural world. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, what, what's up with this? What's up with that? And you're like, you're just uh, instantly off the end of your tongue. Well, this is da, 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 da. <laughs> and, uh, well, I got in an argument, not an argument, a debate the other day with somebody online who said, you know, you not heads want to call these cows deer. You, you come down here and hunt them, you don't even know how to pronounce it. And I'm like, well, my buddy John Odell says that it's cows, not coos. Uh, and I wasn't going to send him your email because I, I was like, all right, I use it interchangeably, you know. And uh, so you taught me that little tidbit about Elliot cows. And well, but I, ta- I taught you the proper. It's it's not like cows, like a like a cow right, elk right. Or, a, or a cow. Right. Apparently, cows, the French right. pronunciation is cows, like house. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah. I, I call them coos deer. They're fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fine with whatever. But anyhow, since uh, you were last on this podcast, you started your own podcast called From the Back Burner. That is correct. And uh, I've been listening to it. I am so interested and intrigued. That's why I got a whole lot of questions for you, and I wanted to have <laughs> you on here. Is for, uh, I'm not sure how you do it, but you take food and culture and people and landscapes and natural history, and you somehow weave this cloth, and the thread that holds it all together is hunting. And our audience is all about hunting and conservation. So I'm like, well... I want to hear what Mr. Odell has learned in his year of doing podcasts. So is this by design or just where the interest takes you that you end up in some really non-traditional hunting locations? 
in uh, the podcast world or the video world. And well, I, I think you know on a on a previous podcast you and I had, um, you know, I told you I I wasn't sure if I was a counterculturist or or subculturist of hunting <laughs> by by design because it's just you know who I am and that's just purpose or if it's totally by accident. But yeah. uh, it's it's just kind of the niche in the space that I fill in uh, the hunting sphere where, you know, it, it just kind of it, it feels right for me. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that that I know, um, you know, it's there's so much story to literally everything. You know, I mm-hmm. think if, if I think if your listeners or whatnot, if, if you've ever read um, Germs, Guns and Steel. I haven't. Um, it's a it's a great book that just really talks about. Um, it, it kind of brings together all the pieces of you know what happened and why and and weaves them, you know how they're all together in creating the story. I if if I were to give you an example, I think if you were to kind of go back in your podcast when you just had Shane Mahoney on and, and did a series on the North American model. Mm-hmm. Um, hugely valuable podcast to to really listen to there. He, he made a comment in one of them where he talked about, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the North American model of wildlife management is that it could have only happened here. The, Mm -hmm. the, the, the tenants that we have and how are precisely because of all of these little, details of history that brought us to to north america and and the things that happened um and so it could only have happened here i mean that these principles that we have for wildlife aren't found anywhere else i mean they're they're different variations of them or different perspectives but these set these certain set of people these certain set of circumstances all led up to what created what we have here and that's kind of awesome. And so there's like all these little offshoot side stories of, of, uh, uh, of how kind of each of these things developed, you know, mm-hmm. um, that to me are interesting. Like I love chasing down rabbit holes of, of little side stories about, you know, this little <laughs> contributor or this person or, you know, the, 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 whatever it is, environmental factors or, you know, pure chance luck that something happened or somebody was there, you know, and, and it contributed mightily or, or maybe, you know, maybe in a small way that, that they didn't even realize, you know? So, yeah, Yeah, I, I was at the professional outdoor media association. They had their national conference in Kalispell the last two days. I was up there, uh, given presentations and i got to talking to a person and we said what if george bird grinnell would have decided to go on that trip when custer invited him to be the surveyor and geologist which custer ended up you know 1876 there's a reason the bighorn battlefield is named uh (laughs) for a massacre that happened well grinnell was supposed to be on that or could have been um, what path? I mean, you, you you go back in time and you're like, I wonder if Grinnell considered it, if he would have, the whole path of what he did for the Yellowstone Protection Act, founding the Audubon Society, the, the list of things that when you start talking about these little happenstances or instances of just coincidence or fate, whatever you want to call it, when you start tracing that back, 
It's like, wow, this is a really interesting story. Sure. But, uh, think about North American wildlife without George Berger now because he decided, yeah, I guess I'll go do one more trip out west with the Army as a, as a surveyor and a geologist. Yeah. And I think I actually was just having this conversation uh, on a podcast of mine that's coming up um, just just slightly um, off on a side tangent of this. We were talking about some of the founders of conservation, mm-hmm. you know, and and what we were talking about actually was was William T. Hornaday mm-hmm. and yeah. his book, Our Vanishing Wildlife. Yeah. And 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 how he I mean, Hornaday is kind of an unlikely conservation founder i mean he he had some good ideas he had some really bad ideas um some very very poor ideas he was not the best i think if you could pick a representative for conservation he's not the guy you'd want there yeah he's not there's a reason we don't roll him out as the number one dude right and i and so and kind of i think everybody you know just because people are flawed um, you know, doesn't mean, you know, that the intent wasn't good or the, or, you know, the direction wasn't good, um, in mm-hmm. the overall, but this is all part of that history. And, and as we were talking kind of off the air, um, you know, cause he was, he was talking to me about it. And I said, honestly, I think if you look at anyone in the, in the history of conservation, George Bird Grinnell by far is the most impeccable, uh, person I think you could have put in front of conservation. Teddy Roosevelt had a couple of little side things. Yeah. I mean, he, he's kind of really the one that everybody pushes, but, eh, you know, I mean, not, not always the, the greatest, you know, I mean, yeah. he did great he, things, but he right. didn't always do the greatest of things. And so Grinnell, <laughs> it's really hard to find negative information. And when you look at, I mean, even William T. Hornaday or Teddy Roosevelt or George Berger, any of those guys, when you look at their lives and the lives that they lived, the things yeah. that they did, the things that they saw, it, they had incredible, incredible lives. I mean, like it's, it's storybook, you know, type of, like yeah. you just can't fathom the fact that this you know, person did this or that or the other thing. And then the unique ties, um, uh, it, as it relates to another podcast I've got coming up, uh, I talked to uh, Grand Canyon National Park about the success or, or you know, what what they learned and, and how it all came about for the bison cull that happened last year um, in Grand mm-hmm. Canyon. Those buffalo were brought to Arizona by a man uh, named Buffalo Jones, um, Charlie Jesse Jones. Oh, really? Um, he was, <laughs> I didn't know and, that. <laughs> and, and he was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt and also the very first um, – uh, game warden of Yellowstone National Park. Um, so there's like all these crazy connections, you know, going back to, you know, different people and different things. And to me, like I said, that's interesting. If, if you kind of, you know, see these people along their, their paths and what impacts they had in little or big ways all, all through the thing. I mean, they're, it's just like a big giant web, um, of interconnectedness and, and things that they've done and, and how we got to where we are today. So to me, I just, I, honestly, I just, I find that stuff fascinating and it could be just trivial details, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, in the end, I think it makes for a much rounder, richer story. Yeah. You know, well, what has happened in the first eight minutes of this podcast is so classic of you and I getting together and talking like this isn't like rabbit holes this is like we we always end up hopping it's like hopping from 
float ice that's floating down the river from one chunk of ice to the other trying to get to the other side it, it i have no idea where we're going to go but when you bring up hornaday you know mm-hmm. uh again this topic came up the other day uh the fact that he was tasked with collecting specimens for the united states national museum uh he didn't they pluck him from the bronx zoo i think is kind of where he first so yeah the, the the bronx zoological society um they had the big zoo there, and uh, he was actually also the first taxidermist for the National Museums, which be- later became the Smithsonian Institute. Yeah, and so the reason that they came up with the National Museum was Hornaday had written, come see these specimens. They will no longer be on this planet in 10 years. Or I'm, I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing there. But the idea was that they had you know, every sample of, of North American big game. And Hornaday and his peers of the time were convinced that we have to go and collect some of these or people will never know what they are or what they were. <laughs> and uh, here we are now. It was 100 years ago, actually. Uh, 1922, I think, is when, maybe I'm wrong on that. But I thought it was 1922 when the uh, National Museum opened and uh, all this stuff was, was – no, I'm off on that. Where am I – anyhow, I, well, I got my dates messed, messed up. But anyhow, uh, that was his idea was we got to go collect these specimens because people aren't even going to know what they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, now we have he shot them. A- he he i know in the 18, late 1800s around the same time roosevelt was up in the dakotas um or maybe just a little after uh hornaday he he was actually working towards the museum at that time and and went to montana to try and find a bison because they they thought you know they might have all been gone at that point and yeah. they really looked hard for a very long time when he finally found a, a herd um in this remote you know, wilderness area or canyon or something like that. I mean, his his whole sole mission was to get a, a bull, and mm-hmm. he found one, chased it down, killed it. The rest of his party, I think, I don't remember how many they ended up shooting uh, out of that herd, but um, he took all those bison back um, and and mounted them for the national museum, yeah. uh, so so he could have a big display there, and uh, but, uh, that event somehow changed his mind a little bit about you know like like something something switched in him about that time with bison and he actually became one of the founding members of the american bison society, bison society um, yeah yeah um you know to, to try and preserve and protect them and then you know roosevelt kind of came along a little bit afterwards and um i actually learned it was it was pretty fascinating um you know roosevelt um of all the things he did, I think it was like 51 bird refuges and, you know, all these hundred and some odd forests that he, that he declared and all that stuff. And he actually created four national game preserves. Hmm. Um, and what's crazy about it is, is one of those game preserves was the Grand Canyon game preserve, which is now, oh, is that how it started? You know, it, well, no. So the, the actual start was a, was a Grand Canyon national forest. Um, which was both the south side and north side of the canyon, as well as the canyon. Then uh, he created the National Game Preserve on the north side of the Kaibab. Um, hmm. And then uh, eventually the park became 
you know, the, I think the park came into existence around 1919 or so, but then the, the, uh, Kaibab, the Grand Canyon National Game Preserve became the Kaibab National Forest on the north side. But the other three game preserves, because they're the only game preserves, I mean, that's very specific language, um, you know, calling them game preserves. They weren't bird refuges that eventually became wildlife refuges or something like that, but they were, they were game preserves. Um, the other three were actually created for bison recovery. Um, okay. And one's in North Dakota, one's in Oklahoma, and I can't remember where the third one is. But the Kaibab was unique because it wasn't about um, – it, it actually wasn't about bison. Um, he, you know, Roosevelt recognized how wonderful that area was and how thick with mule deer. And, you know, at that time, a lot of predators like wolves and, and things like that that were there. But um, it's kind of crazy because as that progressed, the Kaibab National Forest, which is on both sides of the Grand Canyon, north and south, they're, they're different districts. The Kaibab Ranger District North, that north side, the old game preserve, mm-hmm. um, is now like a special area. But that forest is the only national forest in the entire country with a single species mandate. It has, it has to manage that forest for the Kaibab squirrel. Um, really it's written into the founding document of that because of yeah it's a it's a very special squirrel area and i'm sure you know i mean you've seen them th- yeah when you went yeah. up through there and mm-hmm. yeah the kaibab squirrel the, that that north kaibab ranger district has to manage that forest specifically for kaibab squirrels <laughs> i did not know that <laughs> and that's huh. just a trophic level effect that if it's good for the squirrels it's obviously going to be good for the deer it's going to be good for everything else and goshawks right. and and you name it yeah. so Huh. Um, but yeah, I know it's the only forest in the in the country, I believe, that has a single species mandate. So really, huh? Well, yeah. the other the the fourth game preserve, I think you were probably trying to think of, is the National Bison Range. Yeah, it could be mm-hmm. here in Montana. Uh, it was established in 1908. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, that's cool stuff. And uh, I was doing a podcast um i don't know two or three months ago and beforehand or afterwards the person the guest said you know you don't seem to have much fear of dissenting opinions and perspectives i'm like well no (laughs) i want them i i seek them out because in my mind that's where my progress will come from or hopefully if i have a little tidbit maybe it'll come from someone else and i i told the person i said you know you ought to go get this book about grinnell uh and it's the most recent grinnell book the subtitle is america's environmental pioneer and his restless drive to save the west uh i'm going to pronounce the author's name wrong but it's john taliaferro i believe mm-hmm. superb book it is an unbelievable book, but one of the behind the scenes stories that he uncovers that we miss in a lot of our, uh, I'll call it popular conservation history, is that Grinnell was, he, he implied that Roosevelt was a nature faker, which in the late 1800s, there was this idea that you know, I'm going to take a train somewhere to the, you know, end of the tracks or to the Midwest, and I'm going to act like I'm a cowboy and a and a woodsman and a, a mountain man, and then I'm going to come home and write dime store novels about it. And so the, the term came out, nature fakers. Uh, and Grinnell 
publicly in Forest and Stream implied that Roosevelt was a nature faker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Roosevelt, since they both lived in New York, proceeded down to Grinnell's office and was completely fit to be tied. And Grinnell was unmoved by it. Uh, so their first chance encounter was adversarial. And they had different opinions and perspectives on the stuff. And so I, I look at that and I'm like, well, imagine if those two would have just threw their suckers in the dirt and went home and not try to see other people's perspectives or, or make a compelling case of, of their ideas. Where would we be in this world of conservation? Because I would say Grinnell had the brains and uh, Roosevelt had the positions and the, the, the power, you know, the, the political power. And if they had become enemies because of some hurt feeling or some you know disagreement conservation in america would not be anything what it is so it's i I can give all kinds of examples of (laughs) why i don't get the least bit offended and i actually go out and seek people who look at the same problem through a different lens than i do yeah Yeah. but that's actually one of my one of my favorite stories of grinnell and roosevelt about about that because um and i think i've mentioned to to you and and maybe not your audience before but you know i mean i collect um 19th century sporting literature um so you know anything from the 1800s out of america um if you look at it basically prior to the civil war there were three books about the sporting life in america three that's it Um, which were they uh the very first one was um uh it was actually he didn't want his name revealed but it was uh uh, oh yeah uh it was a a shooting gent or something like that and it came out of like pennsylvania um i actually have a very not a first edition printing but but a uh a replicate printing of the second book. And then uh, I can't remember what the third book was, but right after the Civil War, there was an explosion yep. of all this sporting literature that came out. And and part of the reason what got me interested in it was as I learned more about those conservationists like Roosevelt and Grinnell and those kind of things, um, they were drawing on earlier thoughts. You know, I mean, we all stand mm-hmm. on the shoulders of giants. And so for me, I wanted to know where that came from. Like, I wanted to understand, like, where did the conservation ethic come from? Where did the sportsman's code of ethics come from? Where did, you know, all these things that that kind of came to be? And so I really got into, like, 19th century sporting literature. And so I started collecting uh, Forest and Stream magazine. Now, hmm. you know, that may not sound like much to, to most folks today, Um Forest and Stream was actually one of the earliest, um, like hunting magazines. It's like, you know, Field and Stream and Outdoor Life of, of the 20th century. But what's crazy about Forest and Stream magazine, um, which was really, really fascinating is that it started in 1874 by Charles Halleck and George Bird Grinnell was actually the science editor, um, at that time. Forest and Stream magazine, like you have to imagine the 1870s, like this is not, you know, modern day times. Forest and Stream magazine is, it, and it's basically a newspaper. Most of the ones that I find or collect are, are very brittle. You got to like handle them with gloves because you don't want to get oil on the paper. And I mean, it's it's really old. It's it's you know 150 years old at this point, and so it's it's very brittle. But um, this magazine was published weekly. Yeah, 
I mean, and you have to imagine <laughs> like the way that. old school newspapers were printed, <laughs> like they have those wooden blocks with all the letters. So they would all have to be created for the one page that would dip the ink and then smash on the paper and dip on the ink and smash the paper. And, and there were like, there were, you know, gentlemen who would carve these wooden blocks for the advertisements. So the pictures of, you know, guns you were selling or, uh, you know, if Colt was selling some, some kind of new gun or, you know, they actually had to hand carve these wooden blocks to create the picture, you know, that would be printed in this, in this weekly publication. And, uh, and so it was very, very cool, but, you know, people talk about a lot about, you know, um, social media today and how like, you know, there's a lot of like negativity between hunters about, you know, making fun of someone for shooting a spike or, you know, disagreeing with what, gun they use or what bow or whatever this publication was so vitriolic like there were things in there when (laughs) when you read through it Uh, now remember this is like kind of early in the time when game laws are starting to come about if you took more than your limit of fish Mm -hmm. and and it was proven to be so People would send in like, you know, this guy's name and where he was from, and it would publish in there that he was a game hog. You know, you're a game hog. You're a fish hog. Like there's just, I mean, every week it's like I'd read about some new guy who like, you know, in Pennsylvania or Delaware who took too many oysters or, you know, he was, he was a jerk and, you know, shot three deer. And uh, it's, it's just like, they were like serious about, we're going to call you out on your crap, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, you, you kind of move forward. So 1874, Charles starts it and Grinnell's there. He knows all of the naturalists and ecologists of the day, like the oh, yeah. biggest names. He knows yep. Elliot Coos, yep. who, who Coos Deer was named for. He knew Edgar Mearns. He knew, uh, you know, Miriam. He knew, he knew all the big names of the day. And so they were all writing for the magazine. Like they, like the first, I think one of the first, um, publications to talk about golden trout from the West, um, was in forest and stream magazine. Um, you know, like they're learning about these species in the West and that this information's coming back and being published in forest and stream magazine. So it was really like, if you wanted to know about wildlife and everything going on in this country, like it was the magazine. Then you get to about 1881, Charles Halleck is like, I don't know. He's got something else to do. He wants to move on. So he sells the paper to Grinnell and Grinnell Grinnell. takes over. Um, And this is around the time that's it. The paper is one of the reasons why Grinnell had to turn down Custer. So Grinnell, not only did he know all the scientists of the day, all the naturalists and ecologists and stuff of the day, he knew all the cavalry officers because he was one of the guys who would go out as the ecologist on the mission or the naturalist for the for the missions west to get samples and stuff and and grinnell did a great job of like uh a lot of grinnell's early book publications were all about the tribes that they ran into because grinnell would go and sit at the fire and talk to them and try to you know gather any information he could and so he has about five or six books that are on different tribes of of you know kind of the plains and in the west um and so you know, I, I would have hate to have been the naturalist that, that Grinnell recommended to Custer to, you know, send West on that last expedition, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was just, it was really, really cool. And so, you know, forest the field and stream really doesn't come out until into the 1900s, I think right around 19, when did it start sometime early 1900s, but then, um, forest and stream eventually 
uh, Grinnell sells his mailing list of Forest and Stream to Field and Stream, which is what helped Field and Stream become the powerhouse that it was of the of the 20th century. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, but it's yeah, it's it, but if you look at that 19th century sporting literature, you know, there's a lot of kind of hidden cool information that you know these were the books that Roosevelt and Grinnell were reading and and you know kind of starting to develop some of their ideas from from these early guys because it wasn't the common folks it was aristocratic people who were writing about you know hunting oh yeah or it would be very adventurous people who like i've got books from you know hunting in british columbia um way way back in the day or in the adirondacks or you know the off the coast land and waters of north carolina and and there's a lot of a lot of cool history about you know what what it looked like you know, in that era of, uh, uh, of the late 1800s here in America for hunters, trappers, the market hunting days, um, you know, the, the way fine gentlemen would, would go and hunt and, and what that looked like and what they were taking. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a cool influence on them. It's fascinating reading. And for me, one of my, this is probably if you had a ratio of one of my favorites versus very lesser known writers of the time, James Willard Schultz came to Montana, uh, uh, went to Fort Benton, got off the, the, you know, steamboat and, uh, took up residence with the Blackfeet and ended up marrying a Blackfoot woman, lived with that tribe for a long time. Uh, He's written over 30 books, but here's the ticket. He was Grinnell's guide when Grinnell later would come out here. And if anybody wants to read unbelievable, detailed, colorful, uh, just intriguing stuff of what was happening in that period of the depletion of the bison, the herds, the ravaging of smallpox and other stuff, uh, and how quickly this society or this country, that society and that culture of the indigenous folks was changing. James Willard Schultz, he has a, a book, the, the one that uh, is probably best known and, and is the one I have multiple copies of is My Life as an Indian. Uh, it's and Grinnell actually encouraged him to write it, and he would Schultz would write a lot of articles for Grinnell, um, mm-hmm. very prolific writer. So you have this person who is well educated, uh, came from the, you know, the eastern seaboard. You know, white dude comes out and takes up residency with the Blackfeet at that time, and just remarkable writing. Uh, ton, just tons of fun stuff there to once you start following the path of one of these people uh, the tentacles just go everywhere think of how small of a world it was back then oh yeah much much smaller everybody who was somebody in that space knew everybody else Mm -hmm. probably had been on adventures with other people yeah for sure well, this this has nothing to do with your podcast, Jonathan, but it's stuff <laughs> like this that like I had no idea there were, you know, three basic foundational sporting writers at the time and I, I you just gave me some more tidbits there that I fill in my my very narrow uh field of understanding of that stuff, but so I'm going to ask you a, a couple questions about your 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 maybe we should talk about 
your podcast a little bit and then I'll, I'll ask some <laughs> questions about how, you know, some background of you and how you ended up doing this because the things that I have written down are food, culture, people, landscape, story, and then I have them all in this big circle. That, that's my image of Jonathan O'Dell and from the Backburner podcast. So you, <laughs> you end up in some really interesting places. Weren't you just over in, in England this I was. spring? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why would somebody who grew up, you grew up in Whitehall, Montana, didn't you? Boulder. Boulder. Okay. Ooh, yeah. uh, not uh, too far from Wyoming. Those are the those two fight. Those two cities will fight when it comes to to sports. All right. Teams. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. I I did not know you were from suburban Whitehall. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> and then you join the military, and then you end up being a small game biologist and waterfowl expert and everything else for Arizona Game and Fish. Where along this path did it occur to you that I want to go and see what's going on in England. I mean, but I I know you travel a lot, but mm-hmm. I, I'm just trying to figure out why, why England. Why, uh, there's got to be a, so, a story there. Well, I, this is actually um, this is the third time um, I've been to England in, in any capacity. Um, so the first time was actually uh, right after I got out of the service. Um, and uh, I took my wife to London and Paris for just kind of a, hmm. you know, I think it was a thoughtful Christmas gift. I asked her, I asked her, <laughs> I, I, I came up, I actually, I saw an ad in a magazine that had a really cheap kind of vacation to, to <laughs> England and, and France. And I came home to my wife and I said, Hey, honey, I said, I said, so I have a, I have a deal for you. Now, the things she didn't know is I had actually saved a lot of money when I was in the army. Like I had a little envelope that I had tucked away and just every paycheck I was throwing a couple hundred bucks and it just adds up. Yeah. And I really wanted to do something nice for her. And, and so I came home one day and I, cause I'd saw that out. I said, all right, honey, I, I got a plan for you. I said, we can either do Christmas gifts, right? Like, you know, kind of normal. Or I said, we can forego Christmas. And then right after New Year's, I can take you to London and Paris. You decide. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> she was like, okay, we're going, you know. Um, <laughs> and so we did that. And that was more just kind of a, a sightseeing, you know, adventure, mm-hmm. kind of get a feel for for that. And um, But uh, both my wife and I love to travel. And so um, uh, my second trip to England was actually on my way back from India. Um, with my wife, she, she didn't have as much leave time as I did, um, Mm -hmm. from the, from the businesses. And, and so she had to go straight back and I was like, you know what, I've got some extra time. Like, let me enjoy myself a little bit. So I'm going to tack on a few days in England. And, um, she's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll just do whatever I want to do. Like, you know, if I want to go see the countryside, I'll just go do that, hop on a train and whatever. And and my wife is very much a planner. Like she needs that, that, that first trip that we took, she bought every like guide to England and France she could and researched. And like, I mean, she had a whole schedule like down in the minutes. And I, I had to stop her at one point. I'm like, honey, you're ruining my fun. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, if you schedule out everything, I mean, she just, it's just a fear of missing out. Like, you know, what all is yeah. going on? We got to make decisions. I said, look, honey, we're going to be in London or we're going to be in Paris or whatever. And I said, pick one or two of the touristy things 
and just leave the rest of the day open for whatever happens. Right. Cause you never know, like you're walking down the street, you see something you might be interested in, or there could be a market or a little alley or who knows, like who knows what interrupts your day. That's not in the yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very much a seat of the pants type person. Like you just throw me out there and I'll just, you know, I'll figure it out and survive. So, um, but anyway, so the second trip, it just really bugged her that I didn't have like a plan like of what uh-huh. I was going to do. I was like, man, I'm going to eat some, <laughs> I'm going to eat some pasties. I'm going to like, you know, like I'm just going to live and just hang out in London for a while. So eventually she was like, she's like, figure something out to do. She's like, why don't you go hunting or fishing or something? And I was like, wow, I hadn't really kind of investigated that. And so I looked at it and I was like, well, you know, what do they have in England that I can hunt? And so I was like, Ooh, waterfowl, that'd be fun. Like they got some different species and that's like, it's, it's almost yeah. non-existent to try and find someone to take you waterfowl hunting. And so I was like, okay, well then I looked at pheasant hunting and like the things that I was looking at were like seventeen twenty thousand $20,000 for like this seven day thing. But it's, it's like oh. high class. Like you show up on day one, the, the tailor's there, he measures you for your tweeds, <laughs> you know? And then like you spend the afternoon shooting your gun to get used to it. And then the next morning they deliver all your tweeds set up and you get to keep it and take home. And you're, you're like fed five-star food and kind of waited on hand and foot. And I was like, yeah, it's not really the experience I want. I mean, it's cool, but, um, so I ended up, uh, through kind of a, a, a back channel, I found this guy who uh, is basically a pretty big expert in mutt jack deer. You know, these these really what small, deer? a mutt jack deer. Are those so the ones there with are, the fangs? Yeah, there, so there, there's six different deer species in England. Um, five of them are introduced um they're not native to there and the muntjac the muntjac is really cool because it comes from india but uh Hmm. it's it's kind of the transitional deer between um the deer with like really big tusks like the musk deer or chinese water deer that have these really big fangs that you see Mm -hmm. they don't have antlers and then the muntjac has antlers but kind of smaller tusks and then you have all the rest of the of like our deer mule deer white tail right elk caribou and they don't have you know big old tusks so i was like this is kind of cool and plus to top it off it's like a really small deer Mm -hmm. and i give i give coos deer hunters a lot of crap about me shooting jackrabbits bigger than coos deer (laughs) even though that's it's not exactly true true, but but. i figured i should finally shoot a deer that's smaller than a jackrabbit so um oh they're that small uh it was 28 pounds on the hoof Wow. Um, but, and, and I shot a pretty, I mean, I shot a stud of a, of a munchak. I mean, he's, he really, he made it, he made it into the record books. Yeah. So oh, he, made, he was a, a, more than a 20 pounder, huh? He was, he's 28. Pounds. Well, they measure on the antlers. And so, uh, the longest oh, okay. antler on one side was 12 centimeters, um, which is really small. Yeah, 12 centimeters. Like the world record inches. is 17. The world record 17. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh they're cool little so, deer. but so then that yeah was, so so that was my second trip and so uh covid hit and it's just kind of been uh and uh finally you know england lifted their restrictions i was like man i really want to go back and as we started talking about it i said you know i'd really like to like de- like kind of just take a, a nosedive into the shooting and hunting culture of england just mm-hmm. for a better understanding and so um coincidentally i started the podcast and I thought, man, this will be this will be pretty cool. And so, you know, let me let me dig in deep um, into to English hunting culture because the roots of our own conservation and wildlife right. and stuff come from England. 
you know, likely. Yep. Um, there's a lot of influence there as well as other countries as well. But English has a has kind of a we have that kindred spirit. Um, I I, yep. I think the you know the funniest joke that I always kind of fall back on between Americans and English is the problem with English and Americans is that we both speak English. It's just not the same English. Um, <laughs> we, we, the other, the other would be easier to understand if they spoke a foreign language. Um, yeah. <laughs> because we Americans do not speak the Queens English and you know, they do not speak American at all. I, uh, yeah. American English is very different. So, uh, but, uh, so yeah, what, what'd you I, find I got there? Into, um, so, you know, one of the things is I, I went back and I, um, the, the guide who took me on, uh, that first year trip, uh, he and I became really good friends talking over the, the years of COVID and stuff. We, we got on pretty well there when we were out in the field deer hunting. And so we stayed in touch and I said, man, I'm coming back. And, and, uh, he said, well, you know, I've, I'm doing some, uh, some pest control, some rabbit control, uh, for, a couple of the estates, um, that I, that I work with. And, uh, huh. I said, man, I'm in, I said, let's go. And so, uh, yeah, we, we went out and, and shot rabbits with, uh, with a, uh, uh, thermal imaging scope, um, on the rifle oh. at night. Um, they, they used to call it lamping. <laughs> they used to go out with spotlights and, yeah. and then just like when the rabbits were on the edge of the beam, they would, you know, cause they'd kind of stand there for a while. You'd shoot them. Well, technology's progressed. And so now we've got thermal imaging scopes where I could like literally see the bones inside the rabbit. Um, huh. and then, uh, the owner of one of the estates, he had just, uh, his, his sheep had just lambed. So he had a bunch of lambs. And so he was out in another pasture protecting them from red foxes, um, that come in and, and, uh, at night you know, got, with same yeah, thing, same okay. thing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. why are rabbits considered a pest? So rabbits over there, so they have, they have rabbits and hares, European rabbits and, mm -hmm. and the, and the, uh, European hare. Well, European rabbits are burrowers. So they, they oh, actually okay. dig and build dens. Okay. And it's really important for the, the, if you ever see the English countryside, there's all these hedges yep. that kind of divide property lines that, you know, some, they'll have mm -hmm. old Roman walk, rock walls, but they also have these hedgerows and the rabbits like to burrow underneath them and they undermine those hedges. Um, but those mm -hmm. hedges are actually very important for, um, uh, you know, the same reason why they don't put up fences. They, they want these hedgerows because it's natural. It keeps, you know, it's, it's a windbreak. It's, it provides yeah. everything for the agricultural and pastoral stuff that they have going on yep. there. So. Huh. So, wow. Yeah. I, so, uh, how many rabbits did you end up with? Uh, uh, I, I don't mean a true number, but was it, <laughs> did you guys end up with some rabbits? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, we ended up shooting, um, I shot a brace and then we were walking through, uh, uh, this one area that was super muddy and the mud over in England in certain spots is just slicker than dog snot. And so we were walking and I was, I was trying to, to, I'm holding the gun walking on this really slick mud. And all of a sudden, like it just, you know, you get a foot out from underneath you. It's just, and it, you're it gone. just went well. So I'm up in the air and, and all I can keep thinking of, cause it's really hard to zero these, these thermal scopes. So I'm like, I got to protect the, the gun. So I just, I just threw myself to land on, you know, on my back and protect the gun <laughs> And it wasn't enough. It ended up knocking the scope off because we tried to shoot a few rabbits after that, and it it, it wasn't working. So, um, so we at least got a couple. You know, it was good. We yeah. we saw a lot, which was neat. Um, 
you know, the thermal imaging, it was, it, it was different, um, you know, just to completely, and, and for them that's pest control, you know? Um, wow. And it, it wasn't, you know, it, it's not like it was kind of a, a sporting hunt per se. Um, it was just, yeah, that we're just doing <clears throat> pest control. So Cause in Europe, I'm, I mean, I've never hunted there, but I'm aware enough and read enough that I understand that whether you're a hunter or whether you're the owner of the shooting preserve, you can sell wild game over there. Yeah. And that's, so, and that's exactly like I started with the hunt, right? And then mm-hmm. the next thing I moved to was a game cooking class. So they actually have dedicated schools in England um, for game cooking or hmm. game cooking is a part of a cooking school, like just dedicated all the time. Because in, in England, what's interesting is while not everyone has access to the game, they all have access to the food side of it. So but through purchasing it. Yeah. So, so okay. the estates or, or, you know, gamekeepers or whoever, when they shoot hares or they shoot deer or whatever, um, they can sell it off to a, a game dealer, um, kind of a middleman who then sells it to restaurants and, <laughs> and butcher shops and all that stuff. Oh God. They, they have a really intensive monitoring program of the quality of their meat as well as um, disease control and all those other things. Um, it's, uh-huh. it's really impressive. Um, every animal that gets taken off uh, a, an estate, um, the gamekeeper inspects right there on the spot before hmm. it can go anywhere. You know, before it goes to the hunter, before it goes to the game dealer, any of it. Um, and wow. so they actually they actually have training um, in order to become. They have a they have a pretty intensive what I call hunter ed, but it's it's deer stalking. Um, so every gamekeeper usually has a deer stalking certification. They have a part a level one and a level two, and most gamekeepers are at level two. But one of the one of the modules within this this coursework you have to complete is animal hygiene. And meat hygiene and, and those kind of things. So, <laughs> really? um, you, yeah, you have to inspect. I want to go to that course. To it's, it's very, very cool. Um, phase one is pretty much all like, you know, hands-on and, and kind of book learning, um, mm-hmm. about deer hunting and those kind of things. And then phase two, in order to get your, your level two certification, you have to have level one completed. So that all the hygiene, all the right. stocking, all the shooting safety, all that. But then phase two, you actually have to go out and hunt a deer with a with a observer with you, and you have to go through the entire process. Um, and they're the ones that sign off on you as being a, a, a safe and, and dedicated hunter. So you not only you go out and you stalk a deer, you have to har- you know you don't necessarily have to harvest a deer. I mean you can go through the other, but it's harvesting a deer butchering a deer inspecting the meat packaging it make sure you know food safety the whole nine before you actually get your like you're good to to be a, a deer hunter somewhere you know really it's pretty impressive yeah. so that's what gamekeepers go through do hunters have to go through a similar process um not necessarily um if they want to um go deer stalking without a, a guide or a ghillie who who you know accompanies them they would mm-hmm. have to go through those Really? Um, but yeah, if, if you wanted to go hunt deer, you wouldn't have to have any of those. But the ghillie that you're with or the or the guide, um, he's going to be trained, you know, to that standard. So, yeah. Well, I think I just found out how we could Im- improve the draw odds in the West. <laughs> it, it imposed that same requirement of training and proficiency on every applicant for a tag. And 
we uh, maybe I don't want that. Maybe I wouldn't pass. <laughs> I'd get weeded out. <laughs> well, and it's and it's very specific to deer. Um, you know, you have to have an identification class. There's, uh, I think, part of the test is there's 150 images of hmm. deer that you have to not only pick one of the six species, but the sex of of each of these you know photographs that goes along and how you do that is is you know by picking out the aspects that are are unique to this deer versus that deer uh whether that's you know metatarsal glands or or you know antler configurations or coat yeah. color or you know all those things it's uh, antler just it's it's pretty intensive it's pretty intensive huh. to say the least so so uh with that and your life career and training in North America and, you know, you and the agency you work for and many agencies have a lot of information out there and teachings about the North American model. Mm -hmm. It has to be kind of interesting to compare and contrast a model from a place like that, if you even want to call it a model, uh, to how we do things in North America. Yeah, it's, 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 um, you know, I, I actually just recorded a podcast with your field producer, Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago and, and, uh, he and I talked about this. I, I, I think the fascinating part to me, um, in really diving in for a, a really about two solid weeks to, to really get a feel for, for what's going on in England and, and all that, um, it's different, um, very much so than North America, but it's not to say that it doesn't have its quality aspects that, that it's mm-hmm. doing good as well in its own way. Um, it's just different. Um, so I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say it's wrong. It's just, that's how they evolved and developed and they're doing great conservation over there. Um, the same as we are over here and it's just different methods, different techniques. They all just, you know, rolled out that way um and so it's it's a trade-off you know um i I think all the time conservation is a trade-off you know if you a lot of times you know folks look at the african model um the african model is very successful as well it's it's i think equally as successful as ours it's just different um you know and and the way things are are done i mean here you know, I think the biggest takeaway that I had was, you know, we give access to everyone to wildlife, um, mm-hmm. to game, and, and as far as hunting goes, everyone has access to hunt. Not everyone chooses to do it. <clears throat> so a very small percentage of folks are actually doing it, but we give no access to the general public to the meat afterwards. As you and I talked in a previous podcast, you know, about right. the, the idea, you know, folks had, had, had posed about selling game meat and, you know, how yeah. much that just hired everybody if you go to england you know if you have money you can have access to the game but they provide access to the the general public of england to all the food so the general public game meat eating is normalized Hmm. um you know it's in the cooking schools like you they you know (laughs) um the the day after red grouse season opens in scotland is like an eating holiday in england all the restaurants can't wait to the 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 day after opening day of red grouse to serve red grouse. Um, a lot of retire <laughs> a, a lot of retirees in England, um, you know, they look forward to a very traditional British meal called jugged hare. 
um, which is hair taken off the estates and stuff, and it's it's cooked in a pot, like a real long slow braise. It's just mouthwateringly tender, and it goes over this concoction of like mashed potatoes with cabbage and bacon and it's it's delicious um but uh game is very normal to eat over there where it's completely abnormal here i mean people look at you weird you're like oh what you ate a deer oh my gosh that's so bizarre you know it's uh it's you end up with different effects you know i think with the two models so did you bring your podcast kit over there when you went? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, um, I did three podcasts in country, but I actually had a fourth podcast um, at the cooking uh, school that I went to. I took a, an all-day feathered game because I wanted to know how. I wanted some more background and and techniques about how the British deal with game birds. So we actually yeah. did partridge, piz- pigeon, pheasant, duck, and I don't remember if we did anything else. Um, Oh yeah, we we did one of them two ways, but um, I wanted to know how they handled birds, you know, wild game birds for cooking, and it was it was a fascinating class. But purely by chance, um, I ran into uh, Esther Veerman, who is uh, uh, the country cook. Um, she's she's like the Hank Shaw of England. Um, okay, <laughs> so she uh, uh, she happened to be there that day, and you know, I when we started having when we started talking, it was great because I think we found both of our perspectives very interesting um yeah. you know we we took a real interest to each other and so i said man i i don't have any available time to podcast you while i'm here so i said let's as soon as i get back let me send you a link and and we'll do it uh remotely and so we did and yeah. and uh so yeah there's four podcasts for england and and uh esther her cookbook is great i mean she grew up cooking and hunting um in uh the yorkshire uh, county, which is just like the heart of game country in England. And so she's okay. got a, a, a great knack for all kinds of stuff and, and, you know, all English type recipes. So it's a, it's a different perspective on it, you know, um, yeah. which, which I really appreciate. So, yeah, well, I'm going to bring us back across the pond as they call it over there. Uh, you've traveled to some interesting places here recently in north america or in the u.s and you are so i should tell the audience that you are like some world champion squirrel cook-off and dove (laughs) cook-off champion right didn't you win a didn't you win a squirrel cooking contest or i I didn't win i actually i took third place um my first year there at the world championship squirrel cook-off in arkansas and so yeah i went out went back out there and visited uh uh, my friends out there, uh, Joe Wilson, who, who puts on this event, um, and uh, he's kind of the, the inventor of it, and it was it was invented on a lie, um, and so uh, which is kind of a funny story, and, and Joe tells that on the podcast, and then uh, uh, my counterpart, the small game biologist for uh, Arkansas, uh, Clifton Jackson, um, he's actually uh, the if you've ever seen the the jackson squirrel rifle or the jackson rifles from cooper firearms of montana yeah i've heard of it but i've not it's named after him named after clifton jackson um the ferrari of squirrel rifles is named after my buddy clifton and (laughs) and so yeah we (laughs) so he and i go squirrel hunting and and uh yeah i went up to to maine um to hunt with a new friend scott klontz who uh does a uh, snowshoe hares uh, behind uh-huh. beagles? Yeah, um, that was pretty fun. We went swan hunting. I went swan hunting with with game wardens in uh, Nevada. Um, okay, they, that was 
That was Where was that, at? was that? It was that in Fallon, the Carson Sink Yeah, Stillwater Natural yeah. Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the snowshoe hares. Did you find a? Because you have cooked some items before that the world has always turned their nose up. And I've had the benefit of getting to sit at the table when you cook them and you find ways to make the, the, you know, the, the things that people are like, uh, no way. <laughs> Snowshoe hair growing up in Northern Minnesota. Part of it is just a combination that there aren't any real good cooks in the households of Northern Minnesota as ter- in terms of wild game. I, I better qualify that. Uh, there, there are no, Jonathan Odell, Hank Shaw types in uh, northern Minnesota. So we never could find a way to make snowshoe hair tolerable even. So when you went to Maine, did you guys cook it or find a way to prepare it? Yeah, so the the rabbits we took that. So I got invited to a moose camp. Um, that's where we based our rabbit hunt out of. Was was okay. uh, one of the guys in in Scott's uh, friend group had a moose tag, and so like when somebody has a moose tag, everybody right. shows up regardless to help out. Yeah. So there was probably I don't know six or eight guys there, you know, in this camp uh, up there in in Maine, and uh, they were all moose hunting and and the the old timer there the the veteran uh rocco uh he's this this old italian guy um we brought in the snowshoes and and while scott and i recording the podcast he he started working on these snowshoes and and made this like rabbit stew cacciatore type thing um you know while we were while we were talking so i, I didn't get a chance to to cook them myself but um got to try some for this and it was like man this was this was pretty good so really oh huh. yeah well well, you uh, you and Hank are the reason that I am now a convert to the world of eating jackrabbits. Uh, <laughs> and uh, no one would have ever dreamed that. So what other uh, cultures are you exploring or have you explored with the podcast that maybe aren't on the main path that America or even hunters are going to go and seek out? Like, I mean, I, I think you spent some time in the South and texas yeah one of my um one of my guests on an early podcast was um uh uh, johan magnuson um the big swede um Mm -hmm. he uh he's a pretty well-known barbecue guy uh you know in in the world of barbecue uh here in the united states but he's originally from sweden and so he grew up hunting and eating game uh in sweden but then came over here and fell in love with american barbecue and just like you know threw himself into it and his uh his spices have uh placed pretty high at the at the barbecue royale and all that stuff he's he's built a really good reputation on on spicing things and and all that but he has like a swedish influence um to you know how he cooks a lot of things and so i really appreciated uh spending the day with him we we cooked uh actually um uh coos deer uh, back ham, uh, actually one that Marcus had harvested. Um, hmm. and so I was like, I, I, he's like, Oh, I love game. You know, we, uh, I was, I was at an event with Birch Barrel, uh, here in Arizona. Um, we were, we were, uh, at a big barbecue event and, and showing folks what the Birch Barrel can do. And then, um, they said, Oh, you gotta, you gotta talk to big Swede. And so I talked to him a little bit and he's like, man, I love game meat. And I said, all right. He's like, come on over. And I said, all right, I'll bring a, I'll bring a big old coos deer ham. And, and, you know, so I'm like, how do you want to cook it? He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, let's just 
cook the whole thing as a as a big one piecer, you know. And so yeah. we started doing that. He actually has been working on a on a wild game um, spice mix, um, you know, that that'll probably join his lineup here soon and stuff. So I got I got advanced uh, sneak peek into into his development of that, and it's it's really really good. <laughs> But huh. uh, yeah, we we sir we we cooked it up with like the chanterelle cream sauce and mm-hmm. lingonberries. Um, so the lingonberries mm-hmm. are very Swedish, um, yeah. you know, to go along with the meat and things like that. But yeah, there's there's such a big wide world out there of you know learning English, cooking, Swedish influence, trying to trying to piece a lot of these things together. Um, actually, part of the English trip, um, I uh, I. As I mentioned, my my Muntjac actually made it to the record books over there. It was a silver medalist in the in the CIC, um, which is the CIC is Europe's Boone and Crockett essentially. Okay. Um, and so in conversing with um, uh, Tony, who's the head measure for the UK, uh, as him and I talked, uh, he told me about the CIC World Game Cookbook um, that was coming out. It was it was getting just released. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I'm so on that. So I ordered it right away and, and had to wait a few weeks for it to come in. But um, it's a first-of-its-kind compilation of game game and game recipes from around the world in one cookbook. So you have like all these countries represented as well as, you know, the United States is included in that, but you have like species there's like, it's probably the coolest cookbook to me because there's two cormorant recipes in there. Whoa. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of your typical rabbit, you know, quail, pheasant, deer recipes, but there are some species that you have never even thought of, um, in this cookbook, you know? Yeah. You've never experienced before. And so to me, like that's, I, those always kind of give me inspiration to be like, Ooh, I should go check out that country next. Like, you know, these guys are hunting cormorants and eating them up. I'm wondering what that tastes like or, yeah. um, So pretty fascinating. So when you engage with these people, Jonathan, you, you know, you, you're always making reference to the landscapes, where they're from, the cultures mm-hmm. they're from. Do you find that culture is more specific to the landscape, more specific to the people <clears throat> of that landscape, or is it just, it just depends? I mean, it, I, I think it's all of it. Um, you okay. know, there's, it's, <clears throat> Especially when it comes to the to the food side of it, I mean, I, I I'm coming around to the the whole notion of you know it, it's really important for hunters. It's not about what you eat, but who you're eating it with. That's the most important. <laughs> um, and it, it, there's a lot of time and place in that. Um, you know, you and I have broken bread in Southern Arizona. You know, right. with with javelina or deer or something like that, or right. you know, I it's it's just you know it's it, the hunting aspect of it and the harvest of that animal adds so much more context to the meal you're about to receive. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. um, and also who you're with doing it with. I mean, you know, if you were to look back, I think at all the episodes of of you know television, the hunting shows that you've recorded you've gotten to hunt with a lot of different people in a lot of different places and eating a lot of different things. You know, mm. sometimes the meal doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be a five-star Michelin meal. I mean, some of the best meals you could have are just 
meat thrown on a fire and you know maybe maybe you're drinking a a, you know some stale coffee with it or something you know like it's just (laughs) in that moment that is the best meal imaginable and you can remember those things um and so the culture that comes along with it comes with people i mean we all have so many influences on our lives like i look at my cooking and i look you know my mom obviously was a big influence but what influenced her helped influence me and so you know if if you're coming from minnesota and so you know minnesota has a lot of of uh, while you may not consider it but there's a lot of influence there with you i mean you you're very familiar with hot dish um, oh, yeah. you know, and, uh, fried, hey, fried hey, walleyes. Uh, yeah. you know? And if, if you um, saw how much wild rice, hand harvested yeah. wild rice I have in my pantry for me, every meal should have wild rice, right? But obviously it doesn't, but yeah, it's, you're right. I, I didn't even think about that till you said that. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot that influences. And so, um, like uh, at the BHA, I did, uh, I did the field of table, um, two years ago. And, uh, or two rendezvous ago. And the one most important thing I tried to express to, you know, the folks who came and sat down at my table and were trying something, I, I did like a Vietnamese style sandhill crane with like Asian cucumber salad. Um, mostly because they were like, you know, why'd you choose this? And I was like, well, I often wonder like what would happen if you took this game animal and put it in a completely different part of the world? How, <laughs> what, what would they do with uh, it? You know, what would yeah. it look like? Um, and so, but I said, you know, the most important thing is, is to slow down, you know, actually Mm -hmm. taste what it is you're eating. So often we just eat to eat, you know, like there's subtleties within every dish and all that, but what, and I, and I explained to them what you're tasting are the, not only the, the, the animal and, and the cooking style, but you're also tasting the influences that I'm bringing to it the influences mm-hmm. that have influenced me on, on, you know, developing and creating this. So there's, there's a lot to unpack. I think every time, you know, you're, you eat or you're anywhere. Um, you know, you and I were just talking about earlier, you, you've had those crazy flood events there, the Yellowstone river and all that. Yep. Changing, changing the face of everything. You don't know what butterfly or ripple effect that's going to have as it goes down, you know, they talk about a, a butterfly flaps its wings on this side of the world causes a hurricane on that side. Yeah. Um, and so it's those kind of stories like, Oh, a little butterfly caused all this havoc. <laughs> <laughs> like what led, what led to the Yellowstone? I mean, you've had fires, you've had, you know, all these events leading up to what caused this, you know, yeah. um, changes in, in weather regimes and four inches of, of rain that came pouring down. So yeah, it's, it's well, crazy. I, uh, it you just said something that kind of makes me wonder what if walleye was a indigenous species to mexico or what if wild rice grew in you know china Uh, you know there's you the mixes of foods there would be so interesting and and uh, it just i guess it, as I listen to you talk, it, it it shows me, it starts filling in some of the explanations when people say, tell me where hunting has all this meaning to you. Well, the food part of it, 
And what that food is an expression of the landscape, obviously the species, but the culture of how that species and how that landscape is revered or utilized or or prepared is a whole nother part of it that mm-hmm. if you skip the food part of it, you're to me, you're skipping a huge part of the hunting experience because sure. there's so many of these other tenets these these tentacles that that extend to that and uh i I, i've been the beneficiary of many great people uh who are very very skilled at cooking who will take something that i've been lucky enough to to shoot and they make remarkable meals with it you included uh like I have no idea, but to this day, my crew says the best burger they ever had was made by Jonathan <laughs> Odell, and it was Havelina Burger. We still have no idea what you did, but the crew and the guests we had are like, if you could package that and sell that, you would have a chain restaurant where you couldn't breed enough Havelinas to satisfy the demand. It's <laughs> probably very true. And so, you know, uh, what, what's the common perception of javelina? Oh, you get stink pigs. Oh, you can't, you can't eat those. Well, I'm here to tell you that in the right hands with the right combinations of experiments or, you know, your history and your background of cooking, those kind of things, it can be beyond your imagination how good it yeah. is. And so, well, that's and that's really what's cool. I mean, you know to kind of just step back a minute you know wild game was once the revered food of america yeah during the market hunting era wild game was the top-notch food you could get in america i mean that's i try to explain to people you know like when immigrants were were in their own country hearing about america what they heard about what people kind of tend to overlook they're like oh it's the land of opportunity this that and the other thing Immigrants in England or in Europe used to hear that anyone could hunt game in America, which is not something that happens in their home country. Like, yeah. like because only the king or the you know the queen or the royal family had access to deer, and so they were they would hear about America, and it's like, oh, we all hunt deer over here. There's so much deer, it's limitless. You can kill all the deer you want. And that drove them to come over here because it, it, that was so exciting. You know, you, you have to kind of get into their mindset that game in America, like it, it was it was limitless, but, but it meant that, you know, this was like the richest country on the planet because everybody can shoot animals um, yeah. and, and take that and how important that was to their own psyche. And so during that, that era you know, of, of immigration as well as up into the market hunting days, wild game was on every restaurant menu. I mean, that's the reason, the reason that five-star restaurants, the, the way a restaurant in America gets a five-star is it still has to have duck on the menu. That's the only way you can get a five-star rating in America uh, as far as a restaurant. It still has to have duck. Um, (laughs) and that's from those market hunting days. Well, because all those major cities on the East coast are on major waterfowl areas chesapeake bay hudson bay you know all those things along the east coast because there was tons of duck hunting and then all of a sudden conservation comes and shuts all that down and makes it illegal to sell gaming and and now we're at the point where so few people 
percentage of people have had truly wild game that the other folks haven't had. And that's why it becomes weird. It's strange, but it's been really neat to see over the past, I guess, probably 15 or more years, this renaissance within the hunting community of, you know, elevating game meat, but also exploring it because we haven't fully explored the ingredients of North America when it comes to game meat, the way we're doing now, like, you know, barbecue in the South is a, is a, you know, I mean, it's, it's a religion, (laughs) (laughs) but, but barbecuing game meat is not been fully explored yet. You know, like what are the things you can do? And so to me, that's really the interesting aspect of, you know, you don't know what is possible with game meat if it was in someone's hands. If there was, you know, like I said, the Sandhill Crane in Vietnam was kind of just a revelation to me. Like, what would it look like? What would they do yeah. with it? What would it, you know, what do these marinades do to the meat? What does it change stuff? But uh, yeah, javelina burgers. I mean, most people turn javelina to, into chorizo. They just spice the hell right. out of it and cook it into submission. And that's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, you know, javelina can be good. Like, let me start playing with it. Let me, let me, you know, it's, it's related to pigs. So let's start there and say, okay, let's make ham. Let's, you know, let's see if we can do the same things with javelina we can do with a pig. Um, and so burger was just kind of like, ah, oh, let's give it a shot. See what happens, you know? And, and yeah. you kind of stumble upon these great things. The best meals in the world are sheer kitchen accidents. You know, <laughs> um, that's, it's, it's true. It's absolutely true. Um, you know, I live in in Phoenix, Arizona is the classic example. Phoenix is the home of the chimichanga. The chimichanga was invented in Arizona in Phoenix, Arizona, because a burrito, a burrito fell in the fryer. That's, that's, it happened at at a restaurant in downtown Phoenix. I did not know that. Yes. So the, the, the cook was making a bunch of burritos. One fell in the fryer. He cursed in Spanish which is how the name chimichanga came about. That's a derivative of Spanish cursing. Okay. Um, And so chimichanga was born at that moment. (laughs) He pulled it out of the fryer and he's like, well, you know, I should see what it tastes like. And so he ate it and it was delicious. And now we have chimichangas forever. (laughs) It was a pure kitchen accident, you know? Oh, man. Well, uh, so hunters, as you know, being a lifelong hunter yourself, we're not that willing to share some of our we 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 might share a little bit but we got our own personal intellectual property that we kind of keep as our own yep is i i know you run with some of the best wild game chefs in the world do each of you have your own little bit of ip that you don't share or is the cooking world kind of a okay there's Uh, there's there's little um you know some of us will because part of it's a matter of taste, um, yeah. you know, there, there could be, uh, you know, who knows how many flour makers there are, like just mm-hmm. all purpose flour. Okay. Like there's, there's gold metal, there's, you know, the store brought, you know, good value brand, there's all these things. And eventually, you know, you'll find one 
that you really like because like if you do a lot of experimentation and cooking and you end up trying different flowers you'll be like "Ooh, i really like the way this one cooks or mm-hmm. it gives that just kind of flavor that i'm looking for that's what i'm after and that that just kind of becomes your trade secret almost um not that we're like you know intentionally hiding it because it's like any all-purpose flower will work but this is the one that i use and some folks share that some don't you know, um, it's, uh, it's, it, it just becomes some of those things where if you try enough, you know, it, it's kind of like your favorite wine or your favorite beer, you know, you'll find that brewer who uh, there's a lot of golden ales out there. You find the one that just, you know, that's the, that's the ticket that you use for making beer batter or, you know, for fish or any of that stuff. There's always those little, little aspects. So, um, but yeah, creating your own recipes, melding flavors, you know, sometimes it's, it's born out of pure necessity. I mean, I've cooked here at home several times and it's like, uh, I thought I had this ingredient, but I don't, um, <laughs> you know, what can I substitute or what's going to stand in for it? You know, I might uh-huh. use parsley instead of oregano this time that, well, that gave it a different flavor or, you know, you, you just, you kind of find things out and figure things out along the way. Um, but there's a lot of learning that you can do from, from others. I mean, watching people yeah. cook or tasting their food, like that, that really like, wow, that elevated this, or you, you find new things all the time. I mean, there's, it's a really big world with a lot, yeah. a lot of ingredients, um, and a lot of different techniques and styles. And so cookbooks are, are I think are really important because they, you know, kind of give you a glimpse. Some cookbooks are way better than others. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like you can read some cookbooks and you know exactly what it's going to taste like when you've been cooking long enough, you know exactly what it tastes like before you even cook it. You're like, Ooh, that's interesting. Or hmm. wow, look at that technique. And then other cookbooks are just horrible because it's just a list of ingredients and there's like missing components or steps that they don't tell you about that, that, you know, kind of really helped you to, to cook better and cook it the way you want it. So, um, do you, Maybe I've just lived in a small world, but I grew up next to two reservations, uh, tribal uh, properties. But even growing up in that close proximity, the only indigenous cultural food that I was ever exposed to that I'm aware of was wild rice. And I I mean, that was an abundant wild uh, food in way up north minnesota do we see much indigenous influence in our wild game cooking um a little bit if you search it out um you know uh, uh, pretty much like uh, if you go and look at your indigenous tribes in your local Mm -hmm. area those tribes hold so many secrets about the land and what Mm -hmm. they would harvest and how and and things like that i mean it it really like to me that's one of the cool parts about you know exploring indigenous culture and indigenous cooking if if you can kind of get into it and understand it um there's so many other food sources on the natural landscape i mean you talked about wild rice just as one there's probably you know a hundred things in minnesota different plants and the way they would use them um you know the same thing here in arizona like uh you know we've got um uh acorn flour from uh from emery oaks which don't have to be leached um for the tannins like all the other oaks in america you have to leach (laughs) the tannins out before you make acorn flour but it's a really important ingredient in um apache cooking Um, and they'll use it as a thickener for stews and i mean there's just there's so many of these uh, there's a there's a, a really good guy in the Dakotas, um, the Sioux Chef, but it's spelled like Sioux Indian, not 
yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. French sous chef. Um, yeah. you know, he's, he's doing a lot of work out there. Um, you know, really promoting uh, a lot of that cooking. Actually, um, I, I was a kid and we went out to, um, I think it was, uh, the Crow Fair, um, on, uh, on the, on Crow Agency there, uh, one year. And that's the first time I had, um, puppy dog stew. Um, that huh. was geez, 30 years ago. Um, but that, that <laughs> stew, uh, dog stew, it literally has dog in it is the same uh-huh. thing that Lewis and Clark ate. <clears throat> When they right. first came on their journey, it, it got them through the winter, you know, it, it yeah. saved their and life, it, essentially. It, yeah. And on their way home, it became their preferred source of preferred flavor of meat until right. they got to the tr- to the plains again and, and got to bison. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess now that you're talking and I'm thinking about it, you know, when I went to college in Nevada and my time I've spent in northern uh, New Mexico, you know, pine nuts, uh, that, that's an indigenous food. Uh, that, yep. uh, a lot of people have done a lot of great things with that. So I don't know, maybe I'm just not making myself aware enough of, of some of those influences, but it's, it, for me, having been, I'd say the last five or six years, getting the chance to interact with a lot of people who understand food as something more than just, Hey, it's something that produces calories and protein for my body but it has a story it has a a culture it has all this unique stuff i've become a a lot more aware of it and i feel like i've barely opened the first page of a really big book as it comes to food and my hunting and my culture and uh there's a, a shannon here from gastronome uh she came by our office and we we're talking about you know her immense talent uh, as a chef and uh she said well what's the toughest thing you guys have in your freezer the biggest challenge you have in your freezer you got anything really unique and i'm like well i have a necro stuff this 13 year old mountain goat she's like let me have it let me see what i can do with it so she takes it home and she makes some tamales and i'm not doing any justice to the explanation of how she prepared them what she did and all the ingredients and what complements this and how they're brought together and she had the whole story i'm like why are we not filming this but (laughs) she took something that if anyone's ever had mountain goat the flavor is okay but the texture is usually to the point where you don't have enough muscles in your jaw to chew it for very long (laughs) these were off the charts beyond uh, and you know how particular i am jonathan i'm like uh tamale uh, i don't know i ate three of them they were <laughs> that good and they were some sort of shredded type and you know the way she ended up preparing it i'm just hoping i can convince her to come by and ask for some more mountain goat to make more tamales <laughs> do it absolutely she had a full understanding though of well here's this type of meat we would want to use this kind of cooking process and because of that process we'd want to use these kind of spices this kind of you know da 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 and i'm like whoa this is a whole lot different than just grabbing the betty crocker cookbook and saying let's whip up some macaroni and meatballs here right i mean so it, gave, it it just reminded me how many just super intelligent people there are out there 
about food, but as that principle of food and cooking applies to wild food. And, yeah. uh, and, and you and, fall in that category. And, and when you look at, I, I think a lot of times when you look at the world through the lens of food, um, you know, be that hunting, be that conservation, be that hunters themselves, um, it, it gives you a, a bigger, and I, I don't necessarily mean, mean to say like a better perspective, but it gives you a certain view of, you know, events in history. And I think that's kind of where my natural curiosity comes from is, is Mm -hmm. looking at things through a different lens and what that meant to it. Um, you know, it, it changes, it changes your perspective on, on a story, uh, it, you know, or, or facts you want to search out or, or things like that. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, that's to me years ago when I, when I kind of made the self-discovery really of the reason why we as humans hunt even still today go you know go all the way back to the beginning through today why are we doing this and it boiled down to two factors one being the food the tangible part right we need to eat and the second being kind of really intangible but it's it's the story it's the experience i don't have a good word for it. there isn't a good word in the english language for it but we we as hunters convey a ton of information to each other, sometimes humorous, sometimes informational, all those things about hunting to each other that either, you know, it either informs people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when you when the, when the mastodon was killed and we were sitting around the fire cooking up you know, chunks of meat and retelling <laughs> the story, the the young ones were sitting there absorbing the information about how the the warriors of the tribe the hunters of the tribe were able to take this monster down the the old hunters who were there you know the guys who couldn't go on the hunt anymore were reliving their past through these guys like it's a shared experience like yep i i I remember falling down you know a cliff because we were trying to to (laughs) get this woolly mammoth or you know there's there's a lot there but it's it's that connection of you know fire and meat and storytelling and all that that's there's something important it's primitive but it's also very vital and important to hunting in and of itself that is so intangible you can't hold it in your hand um but it it means something it means a great deal to the human existence or the human condition for hunting um it's it's that intangible component that just and that's why, you know, I think, you know, hunters talking, you know, on a podcast, you know, any of the podcasts that you are doing or I'm doing, it's it's that same type of environment. Now we're, you know, the technological age, we don't have a campfire to sit there around anymore, right. but we, we flip on the on the the iTunes or you know, whatever, and we listen to hunters talking about hunting or the experience or that shared stuff and and it's still the same. I think, you know, whether you went back 15,000 years to today, um, those, Hmm. those stories in kind of a way are still the same stories that we've always been telling. Um, and, and hunting has been a major part of the human existence. I mean, you know, our first attempt at art related to wild animals and wild places and hunting and, and conveying that information. I mean, all those petroglyphs, the, the, 
the art in the cave walls. Um, yep. You know, that was just another form of communicating. So there's, there is something for as much as you hear today about, you know, we're an advanced society and we shouldn't be hunting and all those things. There's still some need for the human experience for hunting to continue and exist you know um today we're using it as a management tool to to be stewards good stewards of our wild animals where it's not necessary for survival anymore but it it provides something i mean otherwise why would all of us hunters be here i mean there's there's we provide something to the human experience the human condition by being who we are and carrying on this really ancient tradition of mankind, um, yeah. you know, uh, in, in whatever way it, it shows itself on planet earth, you know, with all these yeah. different animals. And, um, because we, I, that's, I think the hardest part for hunters is to convey that connection to wild things and wild places that we have that you can't pick up in a book or watching discovery channel or, or right. something. I mean, we, we have a great, need and care for all of these these things so well and it's <clears throat> i'm gonna i'll be exploring that next month shane mahoney's coming to bozeman he has sent me eight pieces that he wants to record as video and podcast related to his wild harvest initiative and it gets it, you know there's the scientific part of this but he's very good at getting into the cultural and the societal and the all those things you were just articulating so he he sent me an outline of the script and i feel so uh incapable <laughs> so <laughs> so naive about the depth of his understanding maybe i should have you sit in as the host of that jonathan <laughs> now, now with your year of podcasting experience and, <laughs> and your knowledge and understanding of this being deeper than mine uh, you'd probably do a better job of interviewing shane than i will but uh well i i, I would tell you i mean i i talked to shane pretty early when he started talking about the wild when he first kind of announced this wild harvest initiative and and <clears> it gave me a different perspective i think if if uh i mean one of the things that i examined that if you were if you do a paradigm shift on your state agency any listener out there just think of your state wildlife agency um, as a producer of meat, right? They're a meat producer in your state. <laughs> if, if you, if you it, start thinking about them, so they're really doing a sustainable meat production. Um, if you were to actually total up the pounds of meat from every animal and every fish and all that other stuff, I, I did it actually here for, for Arizona, um, and provided that to Shane to kind of give him, you know, this perspective that I had on it. Cause we were thinking along the same lines, at the same time, but you know, the, the agency here in Arizona, like if you think of it as a meat producer, we're actually the largest poultry producer, um, in the state. <laughs> we, we are in the top top of of red meat producers within the state and think about this like we're now granted i mean landowners and those things are playing a part of this but the land itself is providing you know a lot of sustainable food sources but we produced enough fish and game and everything that was harvested every year if you just looked at what hunters and anglers harvested um you could feed every single man woman and child within the state 
for you could feed them three meals a day for like one to two days hmm. you know that's and it was completely sustainable so you know yeah. and that was based on like you know four ounce portions and and those kind of things i mean it's pretty it's pretty fantastic the amount of meat that hunters are taking from the landscape and providing you know granted right now like i said it's only feeding a small percentage so you know you're talking about five percent of the population feeding a hundred percent of the population for a day or two yeah you know completely breakfast lunch and dinner you're gonna have you know yeah pheasant and eggs for breakfast and you know maybe some elk <laughs> for lunch and a nice fish dinner you know yeah. um it's uh it's it's a different paradigm shift you know if you look at them the way you look at cattle producers or chicken you know farms yeah, or egg, eggs or any of that stuff it's it's wild I, I have never looked at it in that perspective you could almost you could apply that to so many places you know you start thinking about foraging because there's some places where foraging is a significant activity you know during oh, yeah. berry seasons and stuff or fishing i mean i i i would bet if you took some of the really rich fishing cultures of our country and you calculated how much food fishing provides good recreational fishing not 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 sport or not a uh, commercial fishing but right. it would be a significant number because i I'm sitting here thinking about how much fish I eat every year that we catch. It's uh, <laughs> it's not insignificant. It's it's uh, many, many, many meals of sure. fish, and and then that which we share and everything. So I'm I'm excited to help Shane get that messaging out. Uh, he's asked me if we'll use our our platforms to to get the word out. Now that he's kind of due to the the help of people like you and your peers in these state and provincial agencies i think he's got a pretty good handle and his his team has accumulated numbers i i think it's gonna be pretty astounding when people see that and hear it and maybe they'll do what you said maybe they'll start looking at their fishing game agencies and their land managers as meat producers and uh, garden producers or whatever you'd want to call it, you know, for the forage yeah. side of it. So, yeah, it's, but. there's a, there's a tremendous amount of food um, that's done sustainably. Um, sustainably. You know, that, and, and that, I think it's not just sustainable, but in a lot, in many instances, it provides a positive byproduct to the landscape itself. And sure. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, Jonathan, I could keep you longer, but uh, let's tell the world where they can pick up your podcast at from the back burner. Where from where the back? So, that? so use use podcast at the end there. Um, from the back burner podcast when you search for it. There used to be another one that had the same name years ago, and it still shows up every once in a while if you don't put podcast oh, okay. on the end. But uh, yeah, the podcast is available on any platform. I think just about any and every platform that uh, you listen to podcasts on. Uh, Apple Music. Um, actually, probably one of one of my favorite things about this whole experience with a podcast is when I could actually ask Alexa to play my podcast. Um, <laughs> and it came up. I was like, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple, all, all the them. normal things, right? Yeah, yeah. they're and they're all there. We have a show page at from the backburnerpodcast.com. Um, okay. where you can kind of see the whole history of, of podcasts, uh, going yeah. back. We're almost at the one year mark. 
Um, yeah. so there's a whole library to, to go back and check out and, and a lot of interesting people. I mean, I, man, uh, if you want to talk about diversity of guests, I mean, I've got, you've got everything. It. Yeah. I've got, I've got, <laughs> you have you got know, uh, I've got science whizzes, uh, you know, agency folks, uh, Archaeologists. I've, got I've got a podcast coming up, uh, with the, uh, um, MMA world heavyweight champion, Ryan Bader. Um, what? Where's that <laughs> yeah. come from? What, what's the deal there? Uh, yeah, Ryan Bader with, he fights, uh, under Bellator. He's the world, yeah. he's the world heavyweight champion. Um, he and I actually went to ASU together 20 Arizona years State. ago. Yeah. Yeah. He was wrestling there and I was the science <laughs> geek in the back, you know, um, <laughs> taking my biology classes and, and, uh, oh. uh, most folks don't know that he's actually hunts. Um, he, huh. uh, he grew up in Nevada and, and came to Arizona, but yeah, hunting has been a big part of his life since he was a kid. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's that kind of diversity, you know, you never know where the conversations are going to lead or go to. I mean, <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I just recently I talked about, uh, uh, the bison cull that happened on Na Grand Canyon national park last year and, and really, mm -hmm. you know, wanted to learn from the, the park service biologists about, you know, what, what happened to get us here, what, you know, what happened and where it's going from here. And, and, uh, um, yeah, there's, I mean, such a diverse array of folks and, and, uh, topics, subject matters, sometimes heavy food, sometimes conservation, you know, you just never know. So, yeah, well, I'm so busy. I don't have lots of time to listen to other podcasts, but I can tell you around this office, the podcast that gets the most discussion in the outdoor space among our crew is yours and the guests and the, just the the little tidbits or the maybe it's a big tid not even a tidbit it's a big piece about the stories of the people and the culture and the food and the landscapes and how hunting connects all of those pieces and i'm, I'm glad you had marcus on your podcast because he is the one who talks about your podcast more than anybody uh sure. and he's a pretty big consumer of podcasts and uh so well i think uh, i think you know marcus is it, most of the time, I think in hunting shows, you know, the camera guys get, get forgotten about, you know, and, and mm -hmm. so Marcus has been in front of the camera a little bit, but behind the scenes as well as, you know, what it takes to produce a, a show like yours, you know, I, I don't think people give it a lot of thought. So it was, it was good yeah. to have him on and uh, oh, he's, he's doing a lot of cooking stuff here lately. He's, he's rocking it too. So. Yeah. And he's got his own little podcast called Fresh Tracks Weekly. He does. You can find out there. It's like a news thing. But his, like you, he's got a degree in wildlife management. And then he decided to go get a master's in film. Uh, but I think he's as good. He's really good behind the camera, but he's also really good in front of the camera. So hopefully we can convince him to, to hit him and his modesty to not get in the way of, of him expanding being in front of the camera or being at the mic so no he's he's doing an outstanding job so yeah well keep at it jonathan i really appreciate you doing this it's uh it's a space and a and a story that is really beneficial to the hunting food culture conservation landscape space that uh I'm going to just right now ask my audience, if you haven't already, go subscribe and follow it. Download his episodes. What do you got, like 20 of them out there already or 20? Yeah, or something? 20, so, yeah, 21, 22 right now. So, yeah. So, so do that, folks. If you don't do any favors for me this year, 
go and subscribe to Jonathan's podcast. It'll be, it'll be for your, your benefit, not mine, but, uh, <laughs> well, stay cool down there, Jonathan. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, it's warming up, but, uh, you know, it's grilling season now. So we just, we oh, just throw okay. stuff outside. We don't even light a fire anymore. So, oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i got i got work i gotta do i've been on the road i think i've been home for one week if you add up all the days i've been home for one week since the first week of may here it is the middle of june and i better take care of some domestic details or I, the I, plug might the, the plug might get pulled on this operation. I, I can I can appreciate that. You know, Tyler, Tyler our good friend Tyler Webster with the Booze Birds yeah. and Buzz podcast. He said that yep. you and I need to do like a joint, um, wives of hunting podcast. Um, because <laughs> because you give great advice, and and what he's he's astonished by is is like how much more my wife like allows me to do then mm-hmm. like you're you're trying to like squeeze it in my wife's like no you should go hunting get it get out of my face or <laughs> like, I, I have it even better he said he said i should share like these are like above newberg level techniques here that you've you've <laughs> bewitched your wife with <laughs> well it's nice to know that tyler holds me as the measurement standard for marriage advice among a hunting family so right, i owe him sure. a phone call he left me a message when i I think I thought bear hunting, I got to get back to him. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. You have a great day. Thanks for being here, folks.